and welcome to the Let's Talk Autism podcast. We are back. Christelle stopped having babies. Here we are. <laughs> and we have got... And God's grace. <laughs> <laughs> we have got an amazing guest with us today. Hello. Hello. Hello, <laughs> Ayo. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Sorry, you guys have been giving me the giggles already. So I'm, I, I don't feel like I'm ready for this. I'm just laughing. You're ready. <laughs> Welcome to the fun house. This is how yes. we go. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about, because somebody, we had a friend, a mutual friend put us in contact, basically, didn't yeah. we? Carl, who yeah. loves doing motivational speaking, all of that yes. sort of stuff. He said to me, I've got an amazing, amazing guest for you. So tell us all about you, basically. We're going to oh. open the floor there. This is Let's Talk Autism and Additional Needs podcast. You... Oh, I can't think of the right word. We haven't done this. Live on air. You're live on air. (laughs) (laughs) You identify as a neurodiverse woman. So tell us your journey. I do. My journey to, well, being diagnosed is quite long winded, but I guess that's the same for most women who are neurodiverse. They don't get diagnosed for forever. And they just go through the wilderness thinking there's something wrong with them. Yeah, that's always good fun. But um, but yeah, I do really like get diagnosed to my last year, my master's degree. That's for context, okay? That's a long time. So um, like quite vehemently, like I'd be saying when I was like seven or eight, exactly what I was gonna do when I was growing up, have a journal of everything, really rigid and really ordered, organized, hang out with much older people, all my friends are really like 50, 60. I mean, I, I was just telling you guys my Pinterest board what I'm gonna look like when I'm 60. So clearly that, that's just my age, it's not people. Um so yeah, I think always kind of feeling that other feeling throughout growing up. And then I think it was wasn't really picked up at school because I also was dyslexic and no one picked that up as well. <laughs> and I don't know what they were doing. They're just leaving me hanging. So um there's me like working. I mean, this is the extent like they didn't pick it up. So I still like study all through the summer break, Easter breaks, and teach myself the syllabus at home. Because I know when I went to school, I wouldn't learn anything. So yeah, I mean, all my diagnosis came in like the last couple of months of my master's degree. So really, I had most of my education not knowing, not getting any support. And then I started my career. And I didn't actually tell anyone. I kept it a secret because it took a while to get comfortable with that because I just got diagnosed. I started working, but I didn't feel like I wanted to say anything. I thought people were going to like judge mm. me. And when I even like tried to raise it, I thought people like people look at you funny that they, they think it's something else that it isn't what it is for you I was gonna ask why did you keep it to yourself apart from you kind of just getting used to everything yeah um wh- why else did you keep it to yourself because when I told like the first couple of people I told people when I left uni like when I was graduating like I got pushed back that you're not really any of these things you're too bright to be these mm-hmm. things or like you can do these things that people think you can't do or you don't look like their idea of what it means to be neurodiverse especially like Mm. one of my Mm. neurodiversity is autism right and I think we have Mm. quite strong images in media about what it looks like to be autistic it's like Rain Man right Mm. so I don't look like Rain Man I don't act like the person they know down the street or their neighbor's friends 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 that's got autism so that Mm. like a lot of my challenge is really invalidated and I think for me I try to be really optimistic it's like one of I'd say it's like my personality, but maybe it's a mask I wear to some degree. But um, I was too afraid to have any more negative experiences. Because I already had mm. quite a negative experience growing up. I got bullied really quite badly. And teachers mm. were pretty awful about it, to be fair. Um, and people who should have really looked out for me didn't. So it was it, mm. it was really like, it took a lot to 
take that experience and decide constantly to still be optimistic, to still be everything that I am. And then I think it was that point, I was like, okay, so it wasn't even my fault. There was something clearly that I need to support in. Like even like something, like, you know, when I first knew that there was like assistive technology you could have dyslexia, I was like, are you kidding? Are you kidding me? I think it was rage actually. I was like, you are kidding me, right? And then I was like, I don't want to have any more negative experiences because I just don't think I can view humanity in the way that I need to, to be the kind of person I want to be if I open myself at this point in time where I don't have enough resilience right now to have another negative experience. Like, I just feel like that would have been, you know how we talk about the villain error on TikTok? I'm like, that would be it. Everything would be pretty cool and it'd be like villain error. <laughs> you know, yeah. that nerd rage thing that we see when we, you know, in movies and stuff. So I think I was, I was really aware of that. I was like, I cannot be disappointed anymore. I cannot open up about this and have someone mm. invalidate me. Yeah. Be so cruel again. I don't want that. So I'm mm. going to not say anything. I'm going to reduce the chances of this happening. I'm going to go and win. You know, win yeah. and get some. Serious and you're winning, <laughs> and you're really winning, aren't you? Yeah. And I was going to say, but what led to the diagnosis? You said you always felt different. You knew something was yeah. different. But what actually led to the whole? You you saying, look, okay, you know what? I think. Or was it your parents or how did it go? No, well, actually, my dad, when I got diagnosed, told me that he thought he already told me I was autistic when I was a kid because he's a pediatrician. He's like, I'm sure I told you and your mum. I was like, we hear this quite often, don't we, me? I was like, some of our guests. I was like, what do you mean you told me this? But it was when I was doing my master's thesis, um, my dissertation tutor, Professor Chadwick, great guy, but he actually flagged up a lot of things because he's working very closely with and he got to see my raw work. Because, you know, throughout university, I work a lot on my work. I maybe do my dissertation. I start my dissertation a year and a half early. I do assignments like the day they're set. I start working on things much earlier. And it's the first time someone sort of raw product. He said, can you just send me like a little overview of something that you just done? And I said, now. And I would never send something that's not like, I've not spent three weeks working on at that point. So it's the first time anyone saw any of my raw work. And he's like, you're missing words. I was like, because I, I had a process, I had a, my little sister would check things, my mum would check things, even throughout university, I had a system. I knew there was something I couldn't do. I knew that I had to compensate for it. I didn't know quite what it was, but I was going to do it by sheer extra effort and building all these extra systems in. So it means, just like at school, teach myself the syllabus in, in summer, Easter, Christmas, go to school, read fiction in school, so I can escape the bullying. And then, you know, university, do everything in anticipation. Like the minute it's set, start working on it, mom can you edit this mom can you have a look at this little sister can you have a look at this because it was the words I'd be missing gaps and stuff so he was like first of all he started asking questions it was curious in fact his first question when I tell people they're like oh my god that's so rude he's like is English your first language I was like yeah he's like hmm okay and then he, he just he was curious he actually it's the first time someone's actually that particularly curious about me actually and they weren't really seeing all the other stuff I had going on, like the jazz hands of everything. And he was like asking question after question after question. And he's like, I think um, you might need to get like assessed. I think you're dyslexic. I think you're really dyslexic. And your reaction was? I was like, first of all, I didn't actually know anything about dyslexia at that point. Ironically, at the, at the same point, I'd also spent all my time at university in this particular room called Summer. And it's a room that they had for people who had diagnosis and extra needs, but it's the only place that had the right sensory environment that I felt safe. And because I just, I went there for my first week at university and freshers, because 
that's chaotic week. I don't, I have, I really have, I need to balance out that, you know, I can get really overwhelmed sensory, sensory wise. So I was spending a lot of time there and it came my second home. I made friends with everyone there. I think everyone must have assumed I was one of them, but I didn't even think about the fact that they had diagnosis. I just thought, I like these people. They do extra work. They're studious. They're nice. I can understand these people much more easier than everyone yeah. else I was communicating with at university. So then I would get diagnosed and then I would actually end up getting one of the people I spent ages speaking to that, like kind of making friends with, would be the person who would be my support. Oh. It was like a full circle moment. It's like I found my people, but I didn't know they were my people. I didn't know this was for me. I didn't understand what it meant to be dyslexic. It's just not something that anyone talked about. It's weird because like, like everyone yeah. talks about dyslexia now. The strength of a dyslexia, the gift of dyslexia, I see everywhere. Yeah. I didn't even know anything about it really at that time. I just I hung out in Samak all the time and it turned out to me that's a place that they gave you support once you'd been diagnosed and you had like, you know, that person that we a support person. So that's what happened. I got diagnosed and they did a lot of other other screenings and it turned out, you know, I got really high on my ADHD and they're like, oh, you have this, you have autism. You know, then I had to have some CBT because I had some really bad OCD and it was manifesting in other ways and maybe eating disorders, but well, not in it. I say it's excessive control. I don't think it's, it's excessive control. You yeah. know, I'm very disciplined. Um, <laughs> that's how I would, you know, but I would actually find out that these things I thought were just me, would they would have things around them and he would support me around them. So then I went through that process. I got diagnosed with dyslexia. And that was the key thing. I actually got support in that. And I, I only really had three months of help because I finished university by the time that process all finished. But it was at least like the first time I was realizing that maybe I could learn how to learn in a way that would be less energy intensive. Yeah. And since then, like you work in education, essentially, don't you? You're a TV presenter, CBeebies. You know, tell us a little bit about your jobs. Like, was there sort of something behind it that actually the education <clears throat> system in a way failed you, didn't they? They didn't put up these things. I don't know if you agree with this. A bit, it sounds like I have a traumatic sort of school in there, bullying teachers mm. not picking up on that at all yeah. and picking up on your additional needs and neurodiversity so mm. now you've gone into essentially like a job that's really <laughs> fun presenting and education yeah I mean I used a lot of the resources right I started off doing BBC Reels and BBC Bite Size now I use a lot of those resources to teach myself those resources literally were my go-to that and my math so I know, I know everything on oh, that website in and out. That is literally how I got through most of my education. So I think to me, it was amazing to be able to do that because I was like, this is the thing that's helped me and I'm going to be there. But also I was going to be like, because I work in STEM and that was another thing. Right? I've gone into quite a niche role in terms of that they, I know 10% of the course was girls, 11% of engineers in the UK are women. Like, I go into a role that there wasn't really much representation and I was working in STEM and I was doing BBC Bite Size Physics and Chemistry in the field that there isn't really much representation. So by doing that, I was like, actually, there's more chance that someone like me is going to come through the ranks as well. Not just a woman, but someone that's of colour and maybe someone else is neurodiverse. And at that point, I started talking about it. It was the year that I actually did BBC Bite Size. I started talking about it because I realised that it could help someone. And I, st- you know, when I'd gone through the journey of not feeling so ashamed by it because everything, like, especially autistic traits are like, traits that would really demonize you know and that's just like this is this is it I affirmed and I've gone through that journey and a lot of therapy to be fair you know I was then able to like share and talk about it and help other people so I think that's that's the key thing really these are the resources that I've used that have been pivotal to my ability to be here you know yeah. if there wasn't BBC Bite Size or there wasn't my maths how on earth would I have done that 
yeah, yeah. it's amazing you know I, how would I have done because mm-hmm. you know I studied my whole GCSEs by myself I studied my A-levels by myself I got yeah. to university and I'll still use my PC bite-sized content to go and refresh my physics. I, but my the thing math. is, I use it as a teacher, you know. <laughs> I'm a teacher and I teach primary school. I don't, don't tell Christelle that enough. And I, it's safe I'm doing like a science topic coming yeah. up or maths. And I think, I can't remember like children, if anybody's mm. listening to this or parents. I don't even know this stuff. <laughs> I have to use it to help retrieve it because I think, yeah, oh, I know it's there somewhere. I know I've that, heard that amazing, bit before. Though. And then I yeah. go and then I go through it. I do the quizzes. <laughs> no, to, no, to be fair, to be fair, BBC Bite Size is really easy to digest. I find it's anyway, so easy. I use I used it a lot during lockdown because I found out that I was a really rubbish teacher. Um, <laughs> so I relied on these kind of mm. sources. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I was going to say, how important is it for? people to see someone like you and by that I mean that you are a young autistic black woman Mm. living in the UK Mm. um how important is representation for people watching or listening I think it's so important I didn't even realize how important it was till I got much older so I was the representation it's like the moments I was like why am I not anywhere why can I not do this? Why do people not view me as someone that do this? And in fact, I really realized it. I love teachers, had some great teachers, but I've also had some teachers who were, had really um, limiting ideas of what I could do. And I knew that it was because the stuff they would digested about people that looked like me were negative. They had the idea that I'd be more boisterous. So let's say what, what we now know is ADHD traits, you know, bad behavior. You know, what we now know is someone who's maybe having a sensory issue, bad behavior. Or, you know, the idea is like, I moved countries. So that was, that was really difficult to some degree. And I got put in bottom set, even though where I came from, I was really quite doing well academically. So I'm actually pretty academic if I'm taught the right way or if I can teach myself. Um, and I was put in bottom set. And I always, I knew I wanted to be an engineer since I was growing up in Nigeria. I knew I was going to be, I wanted to be an engineer since I was eight years old, right? Maybe nine, maybe. And I was put in bottom set. I meant I wouldn't be able to sit the right papers that would allow me to be in, in the right set when I went to school, do triple science, which then would have meant I, like it would have, it was just something that they made, someone made a decision when I was 10 or 11 on that. And that would have fundamentally changed my whole trajectory. So representation also means for the person to feel like they, they see themselves in that role, but also needs to change people's perceptions because it's not just about the individual. I'm, I'm, I talk about this a lot because it's something that I've just been really working and gestating, so writing my book at the moment. And in doing that, it's really helped me work through so much stuff. You know, I used to think it was imposter syndrome. I don't feel like I can be in this room, be it as an engineer, be it as a BBC presenter, be it as a, you know, an elected councillor or deputy mayor. I can't be in this room. I can't be in this room. I haven't earned it. I need to be more. I need to be more. I need to be more. If I do this more, more, if I do more, more, I'll just be enough, right? That was it. I'm just not enough. Something's not enough about me. And I thought fundamentally it was me. It was me. I need to work on this. Then I then I actually started working on it. I did the work, therapy, coaching, right? And then I realized I would have interactions where people were actually telling me I wasn't enough. They were projecting that at me. And it wasn't just coming from me. It was a system that was saying, I often de chocolat, we don't think you're enough. You know, you've got a master's degree and you're the youngest, one of the youngest child engineers in the country. You worked on in plain sight, which is like, you know, reviewing the, the IC's review of Grand Tower, which is amazing. You've done X, Y, Z. But actually, we're going to compare you to someone who's just left university and we're going to say that you're replaceable and interchangeable because we, we need a black face or something for a diversity campaign and you're equatable. So that was someone saying to me that whatever I was wasn't enough. Or, you know, and it was it was example after example after example. And it, and it was it was bad. 
And that's when I realized that all that time, because I, first of all, being autistic, I think you don't learn to trust your gut. Because you have a sense that you're not comfortable with something. For example, I'm not comfortable with lots of different types of touching or lots of different types of environment. But because we live in a society where you kind of have to just do things and get on with things, you have you almost override your pain threshold or you or you override your filter of I'm just something's not right, right? To, to get along. And I was doing that for so long that I've been in those places for such a long time. Loads of places, loads of systems, loads of people telling me, you're not no, no, you do this, you'll be enough. Enough is in the threshold, but it's not, it's not where you are yet. That I'd already I accepted that. So it wasn't really about me going on that journey to think I'm enough. It's actually fundamentally realizing something ex external to me also is wrong. So when I talk about representation, it isn't just me. So that teacher to not have a limiting self-fulfilling prophecy for that child and that child to have a resilience factor as they, before they gave their diagnosis, maybe they're going for a challenging time at school. That teacher is a resilience factor for that child and says, I believe in you. Even if you've got X, Y, Z, I believe you have potential. Let's find out how to tap that potential. That system will change that child's life. It'll be life affirming. And maybe yeah, they'll even yeah. reach much higher because we all have potential. It just has to be mm. tapped. So the so system true. has to see you as valuable. It's not just you. It's not just so the of the individuals, the team, everyone else. But you are amazing honestly and an inspiration inspiring. to really so inspiring. many honestly it's just it is so inspiring just sitting here listening to you your journey everything you've been through and where you are today honestly I'm just so I'm chuffed for you yeah. and just so honored to be speaking to you you're doing amazing amazing job thank yeah. you <laughs> oh yeah where can we find you where can people go and follow you and learn more about you obviously you can watch you <laughs> Of course. Get set galactic. <laughs> what's get set galactic? Then? Oh what? my god! Oh my god! What's get set galactic? Tell oh it. Tell god. everyone about okay, it. Okay. Guess what gets galactic? It's a STEM-based TV show, right? It's a game show. We have two teams of two kids. They come on to our spaceship because we're in space, and then we 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 do these challenges, right? But all of the games and the challenges are science-based. So is it, we learn about gravity or we learn about pollination, but it's all educational, but it's all so much fun and it's all games. At the end, the team that wins, you know, they get they get awards all the way through the game, but that's not even the point. I think the key thing that I love about Get Set Galactic, that it's like the key thing that made me love it, not just because it's super fun to do, because it's, it's the whole thing is try it and test it, right? Try it and test it. We're going to try it and test it. And we say it all the way through the show because the whole point is that we learn by trying and testing it. And that is such a growth mindset. And it's just like the epitome of everything that I love. So it's it's got that amazing message as well as just being super fun. It's like endorphins. How do we get our kids on there? Please tell us. Tell us. Tell us. Uh, don't know. <laughs> I need to find out. I'll ask. Um, but yeah, yeah you can watch it good. on CBBS every Saturday and Sunday at 10.35 or you can watch on BBC iPlayer and honestly you have to watch it it's so much fun I'm definitely yeah, we'll, going to watch it definitely we're going to try and get, we're going to try and get our kids on there <laughs> yeah I mean get all the kids on there um, it'll be great I want to hang out with your kids it's so much fun yes oh they want to hang out with you they'll be like yeah 
No, oh my they, god! Imagine they would if we if I showed them like one episode, they'd be like, oh, "That's mommy's friend." Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! It's the incredible. It's a famous lady. Yeah. yeah. Famous <laughs> TV. It's amazing. And then if you want to follow me on Instagram, on Instagram as well. So I'm on Instagram on official Ayashokale. I think it's my Instagram name. This is the thing. I don't know my Instagram. <laughs> I know what I'm going to look like when I'm sixty. Because that's clearly my <laughs> I spent far too much time looking at my six-year-old Pinterest board. But um, my Instagram official, I have And I post loads of like science stuff on there as well. So like. Amazing. Oh, thank you so Aww. much. You have been absolutely amazing. As Crystal said, inspiring. And super go fun. and follow. Yes, yeah, super fun. Lots of laughing. My cheekbones are hurting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks very much, Aya. Speak to thank you Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye.